The floor is yours. <laughs> thank you very much, Eva. And thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really delighted to be here and I appreciate your patience with me not coming earlier this year due to the strike action. Um, so my presentation today is going to focus on the relationship of amnesties to political settlements and conflict. Um, I'm going to just run through the briefly the structure of the presentation, which I'm going to give a bit of background and the research context about why I think it's particularly interesting to focus on amnesties introduced at these moments and what's missing from the literature so far in relation to these things. And then I'll set out briefly just a bit of background to the actual study I'm doing, what its objectives are, what the data sample is, and then I'll with that, you know, try and go, go through that part quite quickly and get into the more interesting part about what are the tentative findings we're find, looking at so far in the data um, in general in terms of patterns in the use of amnesties in these settings and then looking particularly about what this might mean for inclusive political settlements and I'll explain a little bit about why we're focusing on that notion of political settlement. So um, I've been working on amnesties forever <laughs> as Eva was saying. I started as a PhD student between 2003 and 2006 and that's when I first had a go at making my database, um, I didn't know at the start what I was letting myself in for. It was quite tricky trying to figure out access and I thought I'd find maybe a hundred amnesty laws. I ended up at the end of my PhD with 506, um, looking at the period from 1945 to 2006. Um, and that related not just to conflicts, but to political crises more broadly. So that could include moments of active repression or dictatorships, transition from those periods, uh, military coups, civil unrest that is serious enough to warrant an amnesty, but perhaps does not reach the threshold of armed conflict. So the full data set is, is broader than just conflict-related moments. Um, in the years since finishing my PhD, I guess I've gone backwards and forwards to the database. I haven't worked on it continually. Uh, I went back to it in about 2011 as part of a project that came out of work here done at Oxford by Lee Payne and Francesca Lessa. So I came last, it was the last time I was here actually, so I'm delighted to be back. But um, at that point we, gave, we were looking at broad trends and what they meant for accountability norms. So I updated it to that point. Then. Over a number of years, I worked with my colleague Catherine O'Rourke, who I think some of you know, um, on database methodologies within the field of transitional justice, and that resulted in an article we published a little while ago, and I think that was a really nice process for me, because when I was doing my PhD, there wasn't much written in the field about how to do that database work. So it was quite an interesting process of reflection, by thinking what, what, about what we do compared to what other scholars within the field do. And in part, that's informed how I've now gone back to my database in the last couple of years. And on this occasion, I'm working on a project uh, with colleagues at the University of Edinburgh, led by Christine Bell, and it's an initiative funded by the Department for International Development. And I was given resources to go back and edit and update my data in relation to conflict and um, peace from the period of 1990 to 2060. So I spent much of last year doing that coding work myself, um, which was quite time consuming, but quite interesting to go back and start having a look and um, seeing, um, especially for the more recent trends and seeing what's going on at a time where I think norms around accountability are perhaps under threat in ways they haven't been before, but that's border issues I'm, I'm gonna get to for today's talk. Um, so what I'm presenting today I, is very much work in progress. Uh, I had hoped that I, at the moment I'm working on a report that we're going to give to DFID this summer and I'd hoped to have a full draft of the report 
ready for the seminar. But the British government released a consultation on dealing with the past in Northern Ireland in the last couple of weeks, and suddenly my workload was almost entirely focused on that. So my writing got uh, my writing time got constrained. And so apologies that perhaps some of this is not as fully developed as it would otherwise be, but. If any of you are interested in Northern Ireland, I am more than happy to take questions on that after this presentation as well. Um, so, just a few words of research context. Amnesties have been used to resolve armed conflicts for, for millennia. We all know this. They've been used in a variety of parts of the world, and this hasn't gone away. So what you see on the slide, there are just some recent headlines about the use of amnesty in different parts of the world. Um, in Colombia, in Nigeria, in Afghanistan, they're used as ways of trying to bring rebel insurgencies to an end in broken um, peace settlements. I think this one here at the bottom is a bit of an outlier case. I'm not sure whether any of you have been following these debates, but over the past year or so, there have been calls from parts of the Conservative Party and the Democratic Unionist Party for what they're terming a statute of limitations for the actions of British forces during the troubles in Northern Ireland, um, potentially also the actions of British forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. Despite the terminology of statute of limitations, make no mistake, what they're asking for is an unconditional amnesty. And so that, that, isn't, that isn't in place yet, but it's something that now the consultation's been launched in Northern Ireland is something which is going to be part of the discourse, I think, in the coming months. And so that's quite an interesting case for me because it's very late. 20 years into our peace process. This year's 20th anniversary. And so an amnesty, we've never had an amnesty, but it's been proposed now. And so it kind of speaks to a bit about the framing of what I'm doing with this project. I'm not just looking at amnesties at the time of the peace agreement, I'm looking at what went before and what comes afterwards if it relates to crimes committed during a conflict. So one thing I found is my database as a whole looks at amnesties in all sorts of political settings. For the period 1990 to 2016, conflict-related amnesties are by far the lion's share of what's in my database. About 75% of the amnesties introduced during that period. And I think what's also interesting is I looked at the PAX, Political Settlements Database, which is the one created by my colleagues at the University of Edinburgh that are working on this project um, alongside me. And their database is rather like my own in that it is qualitative. They, in their case, they take texts of peace agreements and copy and paste the relevant provisions alongside different headings. So they can pull out that if you're interested in amnesties, you put amnesties in and you get excerpts from the relevant parts of the, of the peace agreements. And what I found interesting was looking at the, their sample. They have 208 peace agreements that speak to questions of amnesty but only um, 84 with provisions on courts and 157 on reparations and 16 on vetting. So I think there was research pointing to similar things in 2007 that was done by Vinja Murray and Bosenecker saying that amnesties were more common than other responses to past criminality or conflict-related criminality, but I think the data from the PAX database shows that this still tends to be the case at the moment. So I think that's one thing that's interesting in terms of context, is states are doing this. States are granting amnesties for these crimes. They haven't gone away. The other part of the context I think is interesting for me is in relation to international law. And obviously that's something I could go on about for quite some time. So I'm going to be very brief and just pick out a couple of things I want to flag here. So again, if anybody has any questions, feel free later on. But um, I guess, as no doubt you all know, um, 
the additional Protocol 2 to the Geneva Conventions in 1977 encouraged states to grant the widest possible amnesty at the end of internal armed conflicts. In more, at that point, during the negotiations even to that treaty, um, there were some brief calls from the Soviet Union that that provision exclude war crimes, but they weren't taken up by the rest of the states negotiating that treaty. In more recent years, the Red Cross has sought to reinterpret the meaning of that provision, particularly in their customary international humanitarian law study, which in Rule 159 states that that rule should not be interpreted as encouraging amnesties for those who are responsible for war crimes. That's been quite a persuasive position. You see it frequently cited in international judgments relating to amnesty, etc. But it's not clear that it's fully um, supported by state practice. In the ICIR's original study, there was a very, very small sample of state practice supporting that one particular rule. Um, and they've added to that in recent years, but it's still not something which is wholly convincing. It's a direction perhaps the law is traveling in rather than clear, clear evidence that states are doing this. Um, I think what's been interesting for me too is that for those of you who have been following the efforts in the International Law Commission to develop a convention on the prevention and prosecution of crimes against humanity, the special rapporteur who's char charged with uh, drafting the articles of that treaty said in a report last year that he did not think the convention should include a prohibition on, am on amnesties for crimes against humanity because there is insufficient state practice to suggest that as a rule of international law at the moment. So again, it shows that there is contestation around what the legal norms are in these settings and diverging interpretations of them. I think that's also reflected in perhaps in human rights law um, to some degree. And here I want to flag the El Mozote case um, before the Inter-American Court in relation to El Salvador. That's the first judgment where the Inter-American Court really dealt with an amnesty that was the product of a political negotiation rather than an amnesty introduced by a dictatorial regime or as part of a transition from dictatorship. And the, the, the court found that the amnesty violated, the 1993 El Salvadoran amnesty violated the Inter-American Convention, but in a concurring opinion authored by the president of the court and six other judges, they found that, well, they, they stated that um, amnesties introduced as part of negotiated settlements are different from other forms of amnesties. And they said that states transitioning from armed conflict may need to take steps to harmonize their obligations to prosecute with their obligations to deliver peace, recognizing that both are human rights imperatives. And they then said that there might need, in such settings, that there might be a need for different handling of conflict-related violence. And there was kind of some vague, there was some suggestions, mostly influenced by the Colombian experience around what that could look like. So that wasn't to say that all amnesties are fine. It's a much more nuanced position than that, but it's to highlight perhaps that within human rights law there is some space for thinking differently about amnesties relating to armed conflict. So then the last bit of the context internationally I want to highlight is the UN policy position. And I think it's frequently cited that the UN uh, position rejects amnesties for crimes against humanity, genocide and war crimes, and since 2004, gross violations of human rights. But that does not amount to a blanket rejection of amnesties by the UN. So here I've got two passages, oh, I didn't turn to the slide, sorry. Different, two different uh, passages from UN reports. 
The first is guidance given to UN conflict mediators, in which they say amnesty, the UN mediators can't endorse amnesties for international crimes. But the last part of that passage, I think, is interesting, where it says amnesties for other crimes and political offences may be considered and are often encouraged uh, in situations of non-international armed conflict. So again, there's in some forms of amnesty might be necessary, might, might need to be encouraged, but others are not permissible. And you see similar language um, from the, the UN High Commission of on Human, on Refugees, where they are looking at the role that amnesties can play in encouraging the voluntary repatriation of refugees, and saying that amnesties may be a necessary component of that, but with the exception that it can't apply to those who are responsible for international crimes or other serious offences. So, there's, there's a lot of interest there, I think, at the international level around amnesties in these settings. It's, in, you know, it's a feature of state practice, and it's something which is debated in law, or has a role in law, international law and policy. But I think what I think is interesting is there hasn't been very much written in academic literature about conflict-related amnesties. For those of you who read literature on amnesties, it's mostly dominated by questions of law and legality, and particularly looking at the duty to prosecute. I mean, you could look at the legality of amnesties in lots of ways, but it's, it's focused mostly on does an amnesty violate the duty to prosecute. Um, it also tends to draw heavily on single case study countries and roasting. So <laughs> um, but I think there's been very little exploration in the literature looking at what's different about conflict-related amnesties or amnesties and peace processes. Are they distinctive in different ways? Do they take different design forms? What impact do they have? Because thinking about the impact of an amnesty on the sustainability of peace is perhaps quite different from thinking about the impact of an amnesty on democracy, for example. Um, so I think over the last decade, there have been a very small number of studies that have sought to start trying to answer those questions, um, looking at how, what, how different contexts, meaning ongoing conflict, peace agreement, post-conflict, how those, how those contexts might shape the need for an amnesty, and looking at what impact an amnesty has. But I'm talking about you know, maybe eight studies so far, and they've all produced slightly contradictory findings around <laughs> whether an amnesty is useful or not, which isn't very helpful, I think, for policymakers. Um, there is a broad consensus in that literature that amnesties that are introduced as part of a political settlement, so not amnesties introduced by themselves 20 years after a peace agreement or during an ongoing conflict in the absence of border initiatives, but where they're lo locked into a peace settlement, and that they are more useful in encouraging groups to sign up to an agreement or to prevent a recurrence of violence. But within that broad consensus, there's divergences of opinion about whether that counts for all amnesties or perhaps just for limited amnesties. Um, and I think part of the reason why you see such divergence there is because the few scholars that are doing this work are taking very different definitions of what is an amnesty. They're using very different lists, and they're also looking at slightly different ways of understanding the impact of amnesties. So there's, uh, that's why I think they're coming up with different findings. So takes me to what I'm doing in my study, which is a bit different. Um, so the, the first thing I'm trying to do is take data from the political settlements PAX data set on amnesties and tracking that into are these amnesty peace agreement amnesty commitments actually being implemented. There, there isn't much work 
broadly tracking peace agreements. Well, I don't, don't know of any studies that do that for amnesties. The uh, Kroc Institute, the University of Notre Dame, has quite a big developed database of starting to do this for particular peace agreements and tracking through all the provisions. That's a great resource, but it's quite involved in as, as yet they haven't got large numbers of peace agreements in it. But there is, I don't know of any other studies that are trying to do that sort of information, implementation tracking for a larger data set. Um, I'm also trying to look at my own database, as I said, and edit and update it uh, up to the period of 2016. And then I'm, going, then I'm using that data to analyze um, patterns in the use of amnesties, trying to explore what this means for their design. Do they look different during moments of ongoing conflict or in post-conflict periods? And trying to work out how that then influences in inclusion or exclusion during a political settlement. And so the remainder of the presentation is going to focus on overviewing those patterns. Um, but just before I do that, I'll explain what I mean by an amnesty in my study. There is, as you all no doubt know, there's no international definition of what an amnesty is. And different countries do very different things under the label amnesty. Even within one country, what they call an amnesty may look very different from one process to another. So it's quite hard to come up with a coherent definition, which is why I think the existing studies that have been done to measure impact have all got very different ways of operationalizing the term. And some of those differences include not just collecting data, not just on actual implemented amnesty laws, but on amnesty offers. So if a president makes a speech and says, I might grant an amnesty to these rebels if they start surrendering, whether that goes anywhere or not, whether anybody actually surrenders, whether that offer is ever repeated, that might be included in their data set, which is quite different from what I would do if I looked just at actual implemented legislation. And in my study, I only look at um, amnesties where their legal effects include granting pre-conviction immunity from prosecution. So that has to be a component of an amnesty law. It has to be something that's granted before someone is prosecuted to shield them from that, before they're convicted. Um, other studies also include in the definition of amnesties, prisoner release programs and pardons. So as you'll see in a little while, I include those sort of measures where they go alongside pre-conviction amnesties, because one amnesty law can have a whole range of legal effects, as we'll talk about. But to be in my database, it has to have this pre-conviction um, element. The other bit that I guess is limiting the sample I'm talking about today is that it has to be conflict-related. And I'm relying on the Uppsala conflict uh, data program to identify what's conflict-related or not. But I'm, apart from that, I'm looking at all uh, regions of the world and amnesties introduced from 1990. And there are no restrictions in my data in relation to what groups of people can get the amnesty or what sorts of crimes. Some of the other studies which have been done so far are restricted just to amnesties for rebel groups, just to combatants. And so my, my study, as we'll see, is a bit broader than that. And I guess I don't need to read through this list, but just to kind of to raise awareness that for to be included in this database and also for developing the quite detailed descriptions of each amnesty process, I use a wide range of uh, sources. I use the primary legislation where I can get it. And if I can get amendments and regulations, all those legal sources go in as well. But I also use a range of secondary sources, and that's important, for example, for trying to identify whether an amnesty covers international crimes. Out of all the data, all the amnesties in this sample, there's only one that explicitly says it covers war crimes. That's the Republic of Congo in 1999. 
obviously there are lots of others that do, but they don't say it explicitly in the text of the law. So I then go and try and find secondary sources like Amnesty International reports, Human Rights Watch reports, UN Human Rights <coughs> Committee reports, or court judgments saying that this amnesty has, is being applied to international crimes. And I would explicitly quote that with the source in the database so you can see why it's been coded as including or excluding these offences. Um, then, so in terms of what's in my sample, just this part of the Border Amnesty Law database um, contains 286 amnesties. Um, and that relates to amnesties introduced in 76 countries. And two amnesties are introduced by multiple countries. So what that tells you is, in most of these settings, most of the countries are introducing multiple amnesty laws. In some cases, it's the same amnesty over and over again for the same group of recipients. In some cases, it's quite different amnesties at different moments in, a, in conflict or um, transition. Uh, and as I said, the data sample relates to amnesties introduced throughout the, the life cycle from conflict to peace. So, what do I have so far? So this is the timeline of when amnesties have been introduced in my data sample. Uh, so you can see the one going up and down is the number of amnesties each year across that period. And then the diagonal line running down that way is a trend line. So I think what's interesting is I'm finding that the number of conflict-related amnesties has declined from 1990. Now we could speculate perhaps why that is. I have tried to look at uh, rates of conflict in the world. So you can see here, this is data from Uppsala Conflict Data Program. And they're not showing a drop in the number of conflicts. In fact, it's gone up there in that period. So amnesties related to conflict-related offences has declined, but the number of conflicts has gone up. Uppsala um, don't have up-to-date information for the number of peace agreements each year, so in due course I plan to try and get that from my colleagues in Edinburgh to have a look at the number of peace agreements has declined over that period, So, and also to have a look at the um, peace agreement uh, prosecution provisions and see if there's any, been any shift in those. I think and looking at this, I think the easy assumption to make would be, well, amnesties are becoming less popular. The accountability norm is taking hold, and perhaps they're showing a drop. I, I'm wary about whether that's the case or not. I don't know. I can see other possibilities, because I think states prosecute when they think there's a possibility of prosecution. When they're under, you know, not, not always, but a lot, of, a lot of cases, people demand an amnesty when they think they need it. Um, in a current context where particularly in recent years, it seems like there's less pressure on states to move towards accountability, then perhaps people aren't seeing amnesties as being so valuable. And I think we're going to have to wait a little bit of time before we know perhaps why that's the case. Um, so this is amnesties by region. So I have no surprises here. Most common regions are Africa and Asia. And that's because those regions are the regions of the world that have the highest rates of conflict over this time period. Um, then, turning to peace agreement amnesty implementation, I found this interesting, I mean, of course, because I'm looking at situations of ongoing conflict and post-peace agreement amnesties. Not all, yeah, not all of the 286 amnesties in my sample relate directly to peace agreements. Um, about 110 do. And, um, or sorry, about 130 relate directly to peace agreements. And I found that 110 of them 
were actually implemented. I could only find 23 peace agreement women to amnesty commitments that were not implemented. So I, I found that quite interesting to know that 80% of these commitments are in fact implemented. If I look at the, you know, I work with an NGO at home in Belfast that recently did a study on the Good Friday Agreement and the subsequent peace agreements, tracking clause by clause how much of that had been implemented. Quite a lot of it hadn't, or had only been implemented partially. So I think this is quite striking that 80% of these commitments are implemented in some form. Uh, where they weren't implemented, it tended to be either because violence reignited quite quickly within the country, or because there were internal political disputes around the legislation, who could be included, what sort of crimes. So they, got, they started drafting it, and they couldn't get it through Parliament. So this is a breakdown of um, which context amnesty has been introduced in within my data sample. So you can see the vast majority here are ongoing conflict where there's no negotiations. Um, that's a large chunk. Then you get a few here pre-negotiations, mid-negotiations, uh, comprehensive piece of ground. So I should say pre-negotiations is where, you know, where the amnesty is announced and people are saying that this, will, you know, this is intended to lead to peace talks. There's kind of a clear linking of that, at least in the discussions around the amnesty law. Uh, Mid-negotiations tends to be, as you're all aware, peace processes can often result in multiple documents. There can be lots of interim agreements and ceasefire agreements before you've reached the comprehensive one. So this could be where the amnesty is resulting from those earlier agreements, whereas the comprehensive peace agreement is obviously the, 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 um, the main peace agreement that should hopefully end a conflict. And then post-agreement can be any, any period thereafter where an amnesty that was not originally envisaged in the peace agreement is granted for crimes related to the conflict. And then there's a tiny sliver there relating to uh, UN inter-administration and foreign occupation. So I think those categories I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep using now as you go through the data to try and look at what's different at different moments in um, conflict and peace. So, this it talks about which, which crimes are covered by amnesties at different moments. Um, and some of this is very, it would just be stating what you'd expect to happen. So, as you'll see here, I should say this, um, that's sexual and gender-based violence, and that's political crimes, economic crimes. Obviously. So, unsurprisingly, political crimes being included in an amnesty, it's pretty much all of them going across there, across all the periods. That's what you'd expect to see. Um, but I think what's interesting here is you see amnesties, international crimes, which in my database means genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, to see them being included shifts as the trajectory goes on. So in a pre-negotiation phase, at the early stage, it's not very common for states to include that in amnesties. But as it goes on, it goes up. And then this I find very striking, that fully 50% of post-peace agreement amnesties cover international crimes. Um, I think that's because, as I was saying, that um, people demand amnesties when they think they're about to <laughs> they're at risk of prosecution. So I think what happens here is you have a transition. You have the start of prosecutions, and then you have a backlash against them. And so that's why you start seeing that locked in. I mean, that's what we're seeing in Northern Ireland with the statute of limitations debate. It's no, no, no surprise that that's happening now, 20 years after the peace agreement, 
It's because, for the first time since the Good Friday Agreement in the last 18 months, charges have been brought against two soldiers. And that's why there's that pushback. And so I think that's why you start seeing that there. Um, so let me see what else I have in my notes here. I think, yeah, these quite interest me quite a lot. I think I'm working on another project at the moment around economic actors and interests, and it's just kind of in the early stages. And I think it's no surprise that in most conflict situations, there's a lot of economic criminality of all different types. And those people tend to get off the hook. They don't tend to be prosecuted very much. So sort of bystanders or corporate actors or whoever it is. And so related to that, they're not very often included in amnesties because I don't think they face the same risk of prosecution. Um, yeah? Ah, okay, so it's UN or slash occupier. So that's, there's only three cases in my whole data set that relate to that. And I have to check, I know East Timor is one because there is an amnesty component as part of the community reconciliation process under the, um, and, under the Truth Commission that was set up by the UN and TED. There is an amnesty in Kosovo as well. And I have absolutely forgotten what the third case is. I think it's Iraq under US uh, involvement there. So that's why it says UN slash occupier. Um, unsurprisingly there, if you're talking about UN, you would expect them to see the amnesty not covering international crimes. So who is granted amnesties for uh, during conflict and peace? Now, as I mentioned, the most existing studies tend to look just at amnesties for competence. Um, my own research is a bit different. Um, I, I, I break out a number of different groups in the data who may or may not overlap with the competent factions. So I also gather data on refugees and exiles, so nationals who are outside the borders of the state granting amnesty at the time the amnesty is enacted, draft evaders and deserters, and foreign nationals. So that's foreign nationals who are inside the state granting the amnesty at that time. And I think it's important to look at these different distinctions because I think they can shape the extent to which amnesty can contribute to an inclusive peace process, as you'll come to. Um, I think they can affect the legitimacy of an amnesty in some ways. And this, the last um, aspect with the foreign nationals, I, mean, I think it's interesting for me to recognize how many transitional contexts have cross-border dimensions. Transitional justice processes are often very state-centric, and so looking at where groups inside, foreign nationals inside the state or nationals outside the state get covered by amnesties is something that's interesting to me because it speaks to some of those cross-border dimensions. And it's not something I'm getting into for this particular piece of research, but I understand that at the UN and the US State Department, they're quite interested in amnesties for foreign fighters at the moment in the context of um, counter-terrorism initiatives. So, so I think that's a, a broader interest point that I'm going to up today. But so this is what we can see. It's not surprising that the vast bulk of amnesties are for opponents of the state. That's generally what you'd expect to see in these, these situations as the literature would point to. Um, so you're looking there, it's you know, less, than a, less than a quarter, probably about 15% of the amnesties are for state actors. And most of those cases where state actors grant an amnesty, opponents of the state also get one. I think it's maybe about three amnesties in this data sample that only apply to state actors. So again, it points to the unusualness of what's being proposed by Britain, or by, by Britain, sorry, by the Defence Committee, etc., for British soldiers. 
but uh, it's very unusual. Most of these amnesties would, would benefit uh, state actors. Uh, you see roughly, roughly similar numbers of people getting amnesties in terms of nationals outside the borders and draft evaders and deserters. Foreigners is, is a much smaller category. Um, And we break this down by recipients by conflict. And again, one of the things that's striking to me is um, state actors go, goes up with you know, to almost 40% here in the post-agreement period. But it's, it's you know, mid-negotiations by 20% there. And opponents of state is high throughout that phase. Um, so I think that's interesting too. There you would think that state, state actors, perhaps often during the, during the conflict, don't necessarily think they're at as much risk of criminal prosecution, but perhaps they feel it more at that point. Now, turning to the inclusive political settlements, as far as I understand, this is when we eventually get around to turning the different report into a journal article. This is something I plan to do much more more reading on. So apologies, it's kind of a basic introduction to some of these concepts. But from what I understand, political settlements is something which is relatively new in some of the academic literature, and particularly a focus on inclusive political settlements. And where it is emerging in the academic literature, it's driven primarily by practice, by positions of policymakers. And so here in the UK, the Department for International Development has been leading the, that, the use of that language and that sort of emphasis um, in, in terms of how we respond to armed conflict. And so here, talking about why they're doing this, I've taken a quote from a 2010 report by DFID, which is the first time where they stated um, support for inclusive political settlements is a key objective in their work. And they said they were doing this because political uh, settlements define how political and economic power is organized in a post-conflict period. And they think that ex settlements which are exclusionary are more likely to lead to instability. So obviously the converse there is inclusionary settlements are more likely to lead to sustainable peace in their own <coughs> And so they, they're trying to support inclusive settlements try, means trying to understand power and interests and whose voice gets heard in shaping these, these sorts of transitions. Um, so this is you know, an area that's now becoming part of academic, you know, an area of academic interest. And as I mentioned at the outset, I'm doing this work as part of a project funded by DFID. So it's a small program of work within a much larger project, but the larger project is, is geared around questions of inclusion, which is why I've been asked to look at this in particular in relation to amnesty laws. But it's something I haven't seen done previously in the literature, and it's something as I got into I found more and more interesting, I think. So to just to give a bit of background of how I'm understanding this notion of inclusion, um, here I'm borrowing from the work of Christine Bell, who you know, is, is my collaborator on this, and she talks about two different forms of inclusion. Firstly, you can have horizontal elite inclusion, which, as defined there, means the involvement of the main political and military groups who've been fighting for power, both in the political negotiations and in the post-negotiation political structures. So you're talking about that sort of elite involvement in how power is divided up between those groups. And so the question there when we're thinking about that is, does an amnesty facilitate or impede uh, political and military groups from taking part in negotiations and from holding power in the post-conflict period? So what, is, what does an amnesty do in relation to those sort of elite-level bargaining mechanisms? Then the other form of inclusion 
it's defined by Bell as vertical inclusion between groups that hold power and border social and marginalized groups who seek to influence decisions that affect them. So taking that decision, that, that definition, I was thinking about who in my data can be considered marginalized groups. And of course, in some instances, former combatants are sometimes marginalized in the post-conflict period, particularly if you know, they don't have many other means of resorting, you know, they're rejected by their communities and don't necessarily have means for um, supporting themselves financially, for example. So combatants themselves, perhaps, can be considered a marginalized group. And related to that, if you think about theories of intersectionality, combatants aren't a homogenous block. Within that, there can be former female combatants, you know, sort of female former combatants, I should say, um, child soldiers, or representatives of minor, uh, minority ethnic groups. So marginalisation can take different forms within those communities. Also, of course, refugees and exiles, draft dodgers and deserters, the other groups that I'm looking at in this database, also can experience different forms of marginalisation when they try and return to their place of origin or try to reintegrate into their communities or express their views at, on, as part of the broader political discourse. So the question here that I'm considering is, uh, does the amnesty remove barriers to political participation, broadly understood, for the marginalized groups, uh, or, and does it support their reintegration into the political, social, economic, and cultural life of the country? So how does an amnesty tie into those efforts for marginalized groups to be representative and be able to fully participate in political decision-making in these countries. And I think that looking at how amnesties can do this involves looking at three different aspects of amnesty design. Limitations, uh, conditionality, and legal effects. At this point, I don't really propose to dwell too much on the notion of limitations, but what I mean here is, does the amnesty exclude certain crimes or certain categories of offenders or perhaps certain time periods? Most amnesties are, have some form of limitation in it. I know the literature often talks about blanket amnesties, but I can think of hardly any that in practice are blanket. They've generally always got some sort of defined time period or groups of recipients attached to them. But what I want to focus on more particularly is conditionality and legal effects. Um, here, the list of conditions that I'm looking at is drawn from the Belfast Guidelines on Amnesty and Accountability, which is a project I was involved in with a group of international experts over a number of years trying to develop guidelines on the use of amnesties in different settings. And so we broke conditions down into a few different groups. And I think the first thing that surprised me when I pulled this data up is um, I, I'm, I'm interested most particularly in, in conditions that can enable the amnesty to contribute in some ways to truth, accountability, and reparations. We're thinking about what the obligations on states are. For, for victims or for the society as a whole, you know, it's a, there's a multiplicity of things there, and so I want to know how amnesties can be designed to do that. And what I found of looking at this is that only a minority really trying to deliver these things. So you know, if you look at, or uh, are, are explicitly conditional on uh, amnesty beneficiaries participating in these initiatives. They can exist perhaps separately as in the transition, but participating in alternative justice mechanisms, traditional justice mechanisms, you'll see there's very few there doing that. Uh, truth recovery is a bit more common, but again, it's still not, not large numbers. And I, so I think, I think it's more common for amnesties and transitions from authoritarianism to have those sort of conditions attached. So that was something that interested me having a look at that. Um, and I think, looking through this, you know, these are always going to be product of balance of power. 
I think. The, the stronger you feel, and the state feels in a particular context, the less gen you know, the more conditions are going to attach. The more um, the more they're going to make people jump through hoops to get an amnesty, I think. And so this you would not expect to see huge conditions attached, particularly as you get towards the stage of comprehensive agreements, because if you're getting to that point, the rebels are able to assert some sort of power and they'll probably resist some forms of conditionality, I think. Um, unsurprisingly, the post-conflict settings, the most common form is participation in DDR. That's a form of amnesty that's used, I think, most often in these settings to get combatants to demobilize, to, um, to dis disarm, to mobilize, and reintegrate. Um, and if we're looking through these, I think you can see that they, in terms of our notions of inclusion, these can speak to inclusion in different ways. So firstly, pro where an amnesty is conditioned on somebody taking part in a DDR initiative, or you get access to DDR by applying for an amnesty, people who go through that process are given support in different ways to reintegrate within, within their societies. So if we're talking about marginalization of former combatant groups, then that's one way in which there's kind of a nexus there. Um, the, if we're talking about groups who are somehow ostracized by their community because of their actions, where an amnesty is conditioned on participating in alternative mechanisms or contributing to reparations, those could potentially be ways of supporting the reintegration of these groups. Um, of course, there are other ways in which they may, may not always operate that way. Uh, like Non-recidivism, I think that's there to reassure people that these groups will not re-engage in violence in the post-conflict period. Um, you know, it's certainly it's in Northern Ireland with the early release scheme, which is quite an amnesty, there were strong people who were released on a license, and the idea was if you re-offend, you go back to jail. These conditions are somewhat similar. If you re-offend after getting your amnesty, you will face the criminal liability of your new actions, and in many cases, of the offences that were amnestied as well. So those are maybe quite, quite important safeguards for ensuring that people commit to the peace process in different ways. So um, perhaps that could foster inclusion in different ways, or if people are genuinely spoilers, exclude them. I find a way of removing them if they are disrupting things. Um, and then turning to legal effects, this is really interesting because I guess this is something I hadn't done previously as a student who I first created my uh, database. I had one, you know, one little box around legal effects and kind of dumped things in there. I didn't really think about it too much and gradually over the years, particularly through working on the Belfast guidelines, I decided this was much more interesting. I wanted to understand a bit more about what, is, what effects do amnesties actually have in law. And the categories, again, you see here down this side, apologies if the font is a bit small for you to, to read it, but they're taken from the headings in the Belfast guidelines around what amnesties do. And so you'll see here, um, these two here, stopping ongoing, sorry, there, barring new criminal investigations and stopping ongoing trials. Those are the things that are essential to be included in my data set. So amnesty processes either do both or one or the other to be included. They're applying somehow pre-conviction. Um, but I think what we're seeing here, here is quite different, quite a lot of differences in terms of the effects that amnesties can have at different moments in their transition. I think they get more generous in terms of what, what they offer to combatants as a comprehensive agreement gets nearer. 
And I don't think that's surprising. I think when a um, conflict is ongoing, states don't want to appear weak. So they're still fighting militarily and they'll offer the minimum in terms of the legal effects to be given for an amnesty. As negotiations go on, you'd expect trust to be built up, competent groups to be more assertive in what they're looking for, and so you'd expect to see a broader range of potential legal outcomes coming out of an amnesty process. Um, when we think about what these mean for inclusion, there are a number of things. Um, obviously, if you are at risk of being prosecuted, that uh, actors, former combatants may be worried that that will affect their electoral chances. Being branded as a war criminal, or indeed having a criminal record in some cases, can stop you actively engaging in political life, either by legal restrictions on people who have been criminal records standing for political office, or on perhaps damaging your chances at a ballot box. So that's one way in which um, the, the, these measures can affect horizontal inclusion between elites. The administrative sanctions also are quite interesting. I mean, they vary considerably between different countries around what they mean. But common features of the administrative sanctions are things like you are barred from standing for election for a period of time, or you are barred from uh, public office for a period of time. So if you're thinking about what includes or excludes people from governance structures in a post-conflict dispensation, administrative sanctions can have quite a significant implications. Often they're time limited, and this timing can speak to how you sequence a peace process, how you ensure buy-in over a particular period of time with the idea that you could, if people don't adhere to those conditions, they won't, get the, they won't get the benefits that they're hoping for at the end of that. So there's a lot of conditionality and temporality is quite interesting at play, I think, in how they do these things. Um, but you can see those, those forms can speak to the elite, the elite horizontal inclusion. But they can also, in some cases, I think, speak to vertical forms of inclusion. I mean, in Northern Ireland, former combatants talk about how criminal records impact their life in so many ways. Things you wouldn't expect. I mean, some of these people were never able to have their own families because they were in prison. So they wanted to come out and adopt, they're not allowed to. They aren't allowed going. I was, had a taxi driver the other week telling me he, his son was going, his mother, his, his wife and mother in law were taking his son to America, to Disneyland for the first time, and he couldn't go. So he was you know, really upset that he couldn't take his child on his holiday of a lifetime because he has a criminal record and wouldn't be allowed a visa into the US. Um, also, you're not able to get home insurance, you're not able to work in certain professions. These all may, may sound like mundane things, but there are all ways in which these individuals feel that their ability to contribute to Northern Ireland society, to engage in particular economic activities, etc., etc., is, is curtailed by the criminal record remaining on their, on their, on their record. Um, their, and administrative sanctions also can clearly have an ability to shape how individuals who want to have their voices heard are able to do so in different settings. And indeed, there, in some cases there, I think they are required, I mean, they're intended to do that. So if you look at what amnesties do for exclusion, much as, in some cases, amnesties are designed to foster inclusion, to enable paramilitary groups to transform, become political parties, and take an active part in the post-conflict governance of a society. And in some cases, amnesties are explicitly about excluding certain groups and certain actors. 
So I think we've all seen those cases where dictators are offered amnesty, and maybe doesn't say it explicitly in the amnesty text, but part of the deal is they leave the country, they go away. And there's also um, you know, limitations in the scope of an amnesty. So there's those who are, can get the amnesty and can be reintegrated, and those people who fall outside the limitations that are still meant to be prosecuted, that are seen as somehow beyond the pale of what is accepted within the political discourse of that country. Um, and I think also there's the imposing of the administrative sanctions. So we can have amnesties that refrain um, from granting administrative sanctions or indeed remove sanctions that had already been applied, but then you can have amnesties that impose them afresh to stop people from exercising certain types of behaviour. Um, so I think there, these, are the sort, these are the sorts of ideas I'm going to try, start trying to play with a bit more when we get around to writing up the, the academic article of this. But I think the story in terms of how amnesties tie into inclusion, it's quite complex and quite multifaceted, depending on which actors you're looking at, what types of conditions, and there's a number of different ways in which they can be sequenced into power debate, debates around power within societies and when these groups can transform into political parties and when they can't. So, I think just to conclude, amnesties are used a lot <laughs> in relation to armed conflict at all different moments within the process, um, and they can look quite different at different moments. So, if you're trying to measure the impact of an amnesty, treating amnesties introduced during conflict in the same way as amnesties introduced 20 years after, maybe isn't a fair comparator. You know, so it might need to be more specific in terms of how you think about these things in terms of when they're used or what particular characteristics they have. Um, and so I think my data set, and that it includes quite qualitative information around all aspects of the amnesty design, what crimes were, were introduced, what political context the amnesty was in, sorry, what crimes were covered, what beneficiaries were covered, what conditions were attached, what process gave rise to the enactment of the amnesty law. And I think that allows perhaps for more finely grained analysis around what these amnesties look like and how their impacts can be measured. Um, if any of you are of a more quantitative bent than I am, <laughs> in due course this will all be online. There's a full database, so there might be potential there for trying to do more of that sort of analysis. Um, okay, so thank you very much, everyone. <laughs>